Welcome to tonight's special event at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, commissioning editor for the Sunday Times magazine, Paul Crowton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks ever so much for, for coming. I hope you didn't get too wet on the way in. Um, we're here tonight with three very interesting people from three very interesting companies to talk about uh, disruptive innovation and, and technology. So let's get them out. Please welcome Evan from Airbnb, Heather from Hotel Tonight, and Omid from Foursquare. Keep clapping, they've got to get on stage. Keep going. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So before we really begin, uh, I think you should introduce yourselves to the audience. So in around 30 seconds, if you would be so kind, please tell us all who you are, what you do, and whatever else you can fit in in 30 seconds. So do you want to take it away? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, so Airbnb, an online marketplace where you can book, list, and discover unique properties all around the world. We are today in 192 countries with more than 300,000 listings in 30,000 different, 30, different cities around the world. Thank you. Um, I'm Heather Leesman from Hotel Tonight. Uh, hotel Tonight was the first hotel booking solution that was designed entirely for mobile only, so from the ground up. Um, right now we're in about 100 cities worldwide. It was started in um, San Francisco about two and a half years ago um, and in 12 different countries. Um, we have about 35 million U.S. and venture capital behind us to help fuel the growth and continue to expand. Hey, I'm Omid. Foursquare is an app that helps you make the most of where you are um, and where you're going. We do this by telling you where your friends are. We give you personalized recommendations that take into consideration where you've been in the past. And we also try to give you some nice uh, coupons, vouchers, and offers from merchants that want to entice you to enter their stores. Great. So we're here to talk about uh, disruptive innovation, disruptive technology. So we better work out what that actually means before we go too much further. And we were talking backstage there, uh, trying to work out a definition that we're all happy about. Uh, and in the shortest possible space, we kind of decided that it might be something that disrupts what has gone before. It's a game changer. But that kind of works and it kind of doesn't. Now, a couple of you had some interesting kind of responses to that. So I think, Amit, do you want to kind of explain how you see it? Yeah, sure. Um, so innovation can be seen as um, sustained innovation, or sus yeah, sustained innovation, as you call it. And that would be the fifth laid on the razor instead of three, right? Mach five or whatever it's called without uh, doing any product placement here. Um, <laughs> but the disruptive innovation on the other side, and I like to use the example of Nintendo, um, who's played with a Wii before? Yeah, I thought so. Um, <laughs> so uh, Microsoft and PlayStation, they were really trying to push the existing market um, base, which is essentially the nerdy gamer that was sitting on the couch and playing, and they wanted to increase the graphics and the performance of what was there already. And Nintendo really pushed the boundaries by coming up with this completely new to engage with the platform. And it opened up a whole new market segment, namely uh, older people that came into the fray, women that were interested into gaming. Um, so that, in my mind, is disruptive innovation. And I think it, it really goes back to the saying that um, and Gibson said this, uh, the future is here, but it's unevenly distributed. The person who can distribute it evenly is a disruptor, and it, it really disrupts and um, has disruptive in, uh, innovation. 
And I think um, Amid takes it from more of a consumer definition, where I think when I think about it, I think of it more from the business and the industry. Um, and I think as I look at our businesses up here, um, we're all in very mature and established and um, you know old businesses with like long histories of how they're done. Um, and all of us kind of came or came along, um, particularly like, I guess speaking more about the industry we know, um, but in, in sort of the hotel and hospitality business, um, force big companies to take a look at what we were doing. And to me, that's when you become a disruptor is when you are um, you know, changing the way other businesses do what they're doing um, because of what you've done to the industry. So I think that's um, my takes a little different and more from the actual um, industry side. So let's look at innovation then to start with. So What's more important for you guys? Is it a groundbreaking innovation that kind of changes the, the, the product, the market? Or is it more important to keep bettering yourselves and keep changing kind of incrementally? Or is it that you have to do the first and then you do the second? How, does, how do you kind of approach innovation with your, with your guys? So I think from Airbnb's perspective that what we're doing is not something that is new, uh, hosting other people, but we have used the technology to reach out to the masses. And we also, you know, come up with, we're not just competing with more traditional accommodation companies, but we're also offering something new, right? Having people staying with, in someone's home, experiencing their local, how mm. they live as, a, as the local. And that, that's the, the innovation there isn't necessarily a technology, the, the technology is putting these two people together, right? Yeah, so we use the technology to, with the, the apps we have both on, iOS and Android, so the masses can reach out to this easily. I can, you know, push the button here and see how many listings we have in this neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera, making mm. it easy to, uh, to reach out to these people. I know, but in Foursquare, it was, it was a slightly different thing because people have always communicated. They've always said, do you want to meet me at this pub? You guys took it a step further by saying, I'm at this pub, and then what? Yeah. Um, so maybe I don't know why I'm using the pub as an example. <laughs> <laughs> Says something about your Paul. Well, uh, I'll, I'll take it a, uh, maybe a step back. I think from a business strategy perspective, not innovating is as as bad as folding. Really, the company, frankly, nowadays, right? Everything's moving so quickly that you need to out innovate the competition. So um, I don't think that it necessarily has to be groundbreaking innovations that you uh, introduce has to be innovations that appeal to the masses or your users, right? Mm. To, to reach out to, to people, I get back to my own point. To get back to the more tangible, which is what, uh, what Foursquare did, we really knew that the next stage in local recommendations should be data-driven. It should be about where people actually go and not what some people say on some review sites, right? So that's why we introduced the check-in to gain the data to actually build the recommendation engine that now powers personalized recommendations. So the most important thing here is if you have a vision of the future, you might have to take a couple of steps to really come up with a groundbreaking innovation down the line, and you'll have to introduce a couple of intermediary steps and see if the market is actually ready to take them. Right? Introducing a check-in, not checking into hotels or planes, but checking into the pub, is a notion that sounded ludicrous to some people, and now it's become commonplace because people do it on Facebook, on so many other applications as well. So that first step um, leads to the maybe groundbreaking innovation down the line. So let's talk about these steps then, because I guess there's going to be developers here or people who are interested in that kind of business. So 
how do you come up with an idea? This is a, you know, the million dollar question, <laughs> but do you have ideas meetings? Do you have certain formulas that you try and follow? Do you have a set time where you kind of brainstorm stuff with people? Or is it far more ad hoc? Do you kind of, I don't know, you tell me, what do you do? I think from our perspective that when Airbnb started, it started as solving a problem. To our founders, they were living together in San Francisco and they did not have money to make ends meet paying their rent. So they decided to start this website. We want to rent out some airbeds we have in our, had in our apartment. And they, you know, they solved the first problem, getting enough money, but it was the experience that like, caught them. And this is something we need to you know, share with others. Because they, that exact experience they had, showing their city and meeting people in their own neighborhood and sharing you know, their own lifestyle was something that they really thought that others are up to as well. And now we see the result of that. So it's about trusting in your hunt, really, trusting in your yeah, and gut instinct. From our company's perspective, we give out travel coupons to all the employees. Um, myself, I've stayed on Airbnb for the last year and a half, new place every week. And we stay close to the product. We understand where our strengths are and where our weaknesses are. And we try to you know, figure out step-by-step step on the whole process from booking the place, going there, staying there, checking out, et cetera, et cetera. So Evan needs someone to stay next week, so if anyone wants to <laughs> help him out there. I think with um, Hotel Tonight, the idea was very much like Airbnb. It came out of a need. It came out of our founder um, traveling quite a bit and realizing that it wasn't always convenient to whip out your laptop and try to find a Wi-Fi wi connection to access all the other hotel booking sites that were out there. But I think from there, um, the, the how you keep it going and how you continue to innovate and where do the ideas come from, um, for our business, they come from anywhere. They could come from someone on the customer service team. They could come from an actual customer. Um, all of our developers, we have sort of set up a, an environment where they have time to spend just thinking about ideas or playing with ideas. Um, and I think to Amit's part point as well, um, you know, the, the innovation has to happen in a way that the customer your end user is ready to accept it. Like if you went so far out there, they might not know what to do with it. So it's, you kind of have to test the waters and just get things out there and try new things. And there's going to be a feedback loop. There always, I mean, I think the most important thing that we have is a feedback loop where we can see what happens, whether that's data-driven or actual just customer feedback-driven. But I think you always have to be keeping, especially um, at this stage for, for at least our company, constantly moving forward and, and innovating to stay ahead of, of the competition. If, if I may add, um, I think if you talk a venture capitalist, and there might be some budding entrepreneurs out there, they say, okay, 10 out of our 100 startups will actually flourish. The rest might be just dead weight. And in a way, all those people who are starting the companies think that they've found a problem and they have an innovative way of solving that issue. Now, you have to differentiate between the people that have that vision and the people that <laughs> ultimately are playing to the trends that the market is showing them at the moment. For instance, it would be silly right now to start a print startup in, in some way, in shape or form, because print is dying in many ways. People still love books, don't get me wrong, but it's mobile is the thing, right? So uh, in, in a way, you have to play with the trends. You have to try to see if, if the market is ready for what you're trying to inter uh, introduce. And I think that comes to one of the most important things about innovation, and it is really trying to reach out to your, to your, um, to your uh, customers or clients or users. So we have some great innovative ideas, but then we do A-B testing and see some people in the app don't even care about what we just introduced and thought was the greatest innovation since the check-in, right? 
Uh, and then we have to go back and really think about what, what did we just do wrong? What, what is it that we need to maybe change about this? Maybe we have to scrap the idea altogether. So um, data is, I think, the key uh, in many ways to figure out sometimes what the next innovation should be. Unfortunately, data is always looking back. So you need visionaries that see the trends and try to extrapolate what the future may hold and try to drive the vision of the future and the reality together. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because you've, you said you've got to look to where the market's going and so whether the audience is ready for what you're about to introduce. But more often than not, the really groundbreaking products, almost by definition, aren't looking to where the market's going. People don't expect it to come from anywhere. And if you ask people, because we do this in the old print technologies, we do this with, uh, with journalism. Sorry, we're, on this as well. we're on this as well, it's okay. We'll be here. Um, Ouch, I, I didn't realize that. I'll get you later. Um, but you know, we, we think, right, we're going to introduce you know, an app, we're going to introduce a digital magazine, we're going to do all this kind of stuff. And then you produce something that you think is absolutely fantastic. And as you say, Either people don't find it, or they find it, which is even worse, and they don't like it. So can we talk a bit more about that? What do you do once, once you've put it out there? Is it a, case, a question of, of tweaking until you get a response, or licking your wounds and saying, OK, scrap that, bring in the next one? Um, I think there is this compulsion, and I don't think that's really right, to try to invent a new thing, right? And if you look at the biggest businesses, MySpace uh, was really the new thing, but Facebook really won the game, right? Uh, Yahoo yeah. was there, but Google won the game. They, they didn't really change, uh, or they didn't come up with the original idea. They innovated on it, and they came up with a much better solution to it. So I don't think it's necessarily about getting that new thing out, but actually innovating upon maybe existing business ideas and uh, making them more efficient, making them more user-friendly, making them more appealing. Um, so if you see something and you innovate, and you come up with, with a solution and people actually don't really buy it, then there is this really overused term in our, in, uh, in our industry, you pivot. Uh, <laughs> so you slightly um, maybe change your business idea and your assumptions to see if with a different set of assumptions, these, uh, the adoption of your, uh, of your product is gonna be perceived differently. And I think there are really great platforms nowadays like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all these platforms mm -hmm. that allow you to do that with uh, considerably lower downside than before. Also, technologies are so cheap now that you can just host everything on Amazon and really create an app very quickly so that it's not going to burn a hole into your savings if you try these things out. I think you're also getting into like the whole first mover dilemma. Like, do you need to be first or do you need mm. to be best? And, you know, I don't know how many people here have an AOL email address <laughs> or use Netscape, but you know, other companies, like these, these companies were big and they did a great job and they started, but then they... They didn't keep up. They didn't keep pushing. And so, you know, I think it depends on the industry, but sometimes it is. Like, you know, with our business, we started in San Francisco. There's a lot of people who sat around, saw what we were doing there, and started the businesses here in Europe. But we've now been here a year and, and are ahead, light years ahead of all of them. So it's, you know, they, they had first mover advantage and kind of lost it because they just didn't keep up. So I think it depends on um, the business and, and your, your, you know, what you're doing. But the key is you constantly have to be innovating. Like mm. whether you're first or you're last, you've got to keep moving forward. Is there, a, is there a limit on innovation? Is there anything that puts a cap on innovation? Money, for example? Or with a consumer. You know, the consumer does not, you're getting so far ahead of the consumer that you start alienating your 
existing base. But if that happens, then surely you are still able to innovate. You just have to innovate... Backwards. Possibly, <laughs> yeah. Or, or just more slowly. Yeah. I think it's important to stay close to your users and understand what they need. You can, from a business or a company's perspective, you know, think that my consumers might be interested in this or other things, but you need, mm -hmm. really need to get the feedback and listen to what they have to say. And do, do you ever get feedback and go, no, you're wrong? Yeah, you know, we are in 192 different countries. Of course, there are different cultures around the world uh, with different needs. That's why we, you know, have 10 or so com offices around the world. So we can stay close to our communities all over the world and not only in San Francisco where we have our HQ. I do think, like, I somewhat disagree, just get a little controversial, because I think that consumers only know what they know. Like, you have to be a little ahead of them. And, and um, if, you, if you rely too much on internal feedback, um, yeah, you'll get some ideas, but I think you miss those game-changing ideas. I think you miss those, like, you know, dog-leg kind of um, curves in the business. So I think it has to be a mix. I think you have to um, keep up the ideas and keep in touch with the consumer, but you also have to be... Uh, brave enough and be able to take risks to go out beyond where you think they are and give it a try and see what happens and, and stick with it for a little while, but you know, also know that you can, you can come back a little bit. So I think it's a, I think it's a mixture of, of the two. I think Heather is hitting on an important point there. And uh, if you look at Google, for instance, if you think back about the notion of copyright, I think the idea that a snippet of your copyrighted web page content is going to show up on, a, on another web page was very controversial initially, right? You would think, hey, this is, this is pushing the boundary. And it's exactly that, that pushing the boundary a little bit to an extent that is irritating but is not necessarily alienating, that makes it, it, makes it uh, quite a successful innovation, right? I think Facebook did the same, right? It, it pushed the boundaries when it came to privacy. Right? Uh, it decided, okay, I think we want to build profiles. Everybody in the beginning was, nah, I don't want to be on there. But all of a sudden, their network effects and everybody's on it and there's a lot of value generated. I think we're doing the same with location-based information and people um, sharing the location. And I think ultimately a limit to innovation is, as you said, money, time constraints, obviously, but also other constraints such as privacy, such as um, people's uh, cultural perceptions, as, as uh, Evan was, uh, was saying. So. Um, I think you have to try to push the envelope to this, to a slight, slightly, so it gets a little bit irritating, but not too annoying. It's like just getting people outside their comfort zone. Exactly. Mm. You know? that's, that's a Whether it's the customer, it. the industry, the other businesses, it's just pushing people a little bit further than what they're comfortable with. So can you let us into any secrets? What, <laughs> has there been any uh, examples you can give us of when you've really tried to produce something and you've had a real pushback from the audience that says, you're mad, I don't want that. Uh, is there a kind of an example that you, all p you would have all put your money on black and it came out red? <laughs> That's got them, isn't it? I know. Uh, I have Stumped one. Go on, you go ahead. Ladies first. <laughs> no, I go ahead. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so we came up with this uh, technology called Radar. Uh, and Radar, essentially, on Foursquare is a way where you could tell your Foursquare application, you can listen to my location, and based on my location, you can give me recommendations that are interesting, right? And we thought this would be interesting for users, and I ultimately totally still believe in the premise that it is useful, and we'll, we might uh, iterate on that. But ultimately, the problem technologically was that it was draining battery, right? And it was draining battery to an extent that was unacceptable from a user perspective. So a couple of people used it, 
and we think it's a game changer in many ways, but technologically we weren't there and the trade-off between the battery time and the benefit in getting suggestions pushed to you that would be personalized, interesting to you specifically. Let me just give you an example to make it more tangible. Let's say you walk down the streets of Paris and you have Foursquare in your pocket and all of a sudden it says, hey, your friend Tom has been to this bar. Do you want to go and check it out? Wow, Tom doesn't live in Paris. He lives in, in San Francisco. He's been to this bar. This makes this bar all of a sudden novel to me and interesting. So this type of serendipitous discovery of places, I think, can be facilitated through technology like this. However, again, people were not happy with the trade-off in battery time. And that's why we had to essentially give that up and start iterating again and try to figure out a better way to do it, which uh, deals with the technological constraints. I hope that was kind of fitting. Perfect example. Okay. Yeah. Great, thanks. Um, I'm only going to ask one or two more questions, then we're going to open up because we've got so many people who I can tell are just brimming with intelligent <laughs> questions. Um, but perhaps our last question then should... What innovation that have you guys been a part of that you are really proud of? Is there one thing that you would say, if it all went pear-shaped tomorrow, we gave this to the world, we did this, and it's been taken on by business, it's been taken on by other people and, and that's our legacy. Um, well, I think that the, I don't know if it goes into legacy status, but the, um, I think the, the most recent thing that we launched was a snap your stay feature on the app, which is uh, photo-based photo reviews. Um, and I think it's just really in line with our brand and also the fact that you can only book via your mobile, mobile device, your smartphone device, which is also a camera. So anyone, as soon as you sort of book a stay on um, Hotel Tonight for your room tonight, you know, we know natural behavior is people take pictures, they want to brag to their friends, Friends, they're going to post it on all kinds of social sites, and so we've incentivized people to do that. Um, and it's twofold. One, it's it's really great for the hotels to get greater awareness among the customers of um, the sort of social networks of the people that that check in there. But it's also um, a really great way to build user-generated content. Um, and it's something as simple. So you know, a lot of times, what you hear about um, the negative pushback from TripAdvisor or places like that is, well, I don't know who that person is, and I don't know if I agree with them. Um, and their view might be not be relevant to me, but a picture is a picture. You know, it's very, um, it's harder to be subjective with pictures. And so um, I, I personally feel like it's a really, really interesting and on-brand and very innovative way to do reviews without doing reviews like everyone else has done them. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, half a year ago now when the Sandy Storm hit New York, uh, we experienced that the host community we have, they went together and 500 people sign up through our site to offer free accommodation to people that lost their homes. And now we're rolling out a program with different governments around the world to be a partner when these things happen. And that's something that we are really proud of as a company, that the community came to us and said that we can fix this together. Mm, nice. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite uh, amazing if you have a build a platform that 40 million users use. There obviously amazing things happening. People get married because of your platform. People get uh, move in together and all these things. Um, but I'd say in terms of um, social good, we probably haven't had uh, something as amazing as Evan mentioned. So I'll go back to the technology innovation and that's the check-in itself, I think was a ludicrous notion in the beginning. Um, we kind of brought that into existence and a lot of people have co copied it afterwards. Um, and one thing that I would love to show you right now, but I don't have it, but if you actually look at the check-in patterns of a city like New York or London, 
and look, put it on a map, you can actually see the pulse of the city. You can see how people are coming into the city in the morning and start checking into their workplaces and in the tube in the beginning. And then in the evening, they start checking into restaurants. And you can see that Tokyo compared to London is a little bit more boring because people go home earlier and people in London keep on checking into the early morning. Right? These are things that um, we, we have on our platform and the data comes alive. And I, I think that's quite exciting. And trying to take that data and give it back to users and meaningful recommendations and more insights is, I think, what, we, what I'm proudest of. And I really uh, encourage you to download our application. It's for free uh, on all platforms. <laughs> I knew some of stuff. Play around with it. I have to do it. I'm sorry. I have to do it. And you know, it gives you really great recommendations about what to do in different places, especially when you're traveling or even when you're at home. Uh, so give it a try. You done? Plug it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> right, it's your go. Uh, any questions? We've got a couple of mics coming around, so um, don't start screaming until you've got a mic, otherwise you won't be on the podcast. So we've got one, two, three, straight away. Um, gentleman in the second row. Hello, great to be here. Um, my question's really around the commercial aspect of what we're talking about today. So um, if you take the example of the Concorde, so a fantastic um, example of innovation, but the economics weren't really there, didn't really stack up, and therefore it's now a figment of the past. Um, what kind of mechanisms do you put in place in your businesses to make sure that you kind of incubate that uh, kind of passion and, and, and the real nature of innovation, but also you maintain a respect for the economics of your businesses? It's a key question, isn't it? Yeah. Good question, definitely. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I can start, and that is, um, I, I think that what's a big challenge is with um, with our business at least, you want to stay ahead of the technology. You have to have the top developers. You have to have people that are very creative, the best designers, everything else. But as everyone knows, running the business, there's a lot of things that just need to get done. Um, and so finding the balance for the, the teams internally, um, for creating space for them to be creative, creating space and, and opportunity for them to come up with new ideas and play with new ideas and push the envelope, while also recognizing that what drives the business is not always the most sexy, glamorous part. And so keeping them happy is, is a really important um, piece of the business, uh, or, or I guess part of our role is, is, is balancing that. Because there are, um, you know, absolutely you have to kind of you can come up with the greatest idea and the most interesting thing and people will download it, but if it doesn't make money, it's going to go by the wayside. And, and so I think for, for all of our businesses and ours, um, you know, we have investors that keep us also very um, grounded um, in the types of things that we're doing and it is a balance. Like we have prioritization projects that are prioritization um, meetings that you know, we want to make sure that we're not just, like unlike a big company, we have, um, the opportunity, I've worked at large organizations and startups and at, at, at Hotel Tonight and a lot of startups, you have the flexibility and your, the time and the space to do both. Um, so you don't only have to do the boring stuff that, that drives the business. And I think it's just, the key is finding that balance. Like, um, you don't want to go too far on one side, you don't want to go too far to the other. And it's just really finding that natural balance, which is going to be different for everyone. Great. Yeah, I think that um, at Airbnb, we have given, been given a lot of freedom to do things that don't scale. Um, if you go all the way back to when we started the company, uh, Brian and Joe, they got a, and Nate got a recommendation from one of the investors that it's better to have a thousand people that love you than a million people kind of like you. <laughs> so we have been given now in all the offices around the world the toolbox to go out and really engage with the community to have them really love what we do. Nice. One thing, if I may add, is... 
I think there has to be a clear separation between uh, church and state in a way. Uh, there has to be a clear secularism in a way that you never, uh, you never sacrifice user, um, user experience for monetization. Um, and you'd, 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 you'd see a lot of VCs investing in ideas where there is no monetization in sight. I'd say, I mean, Tumblr in the beginning, us in the beginning, so many others in the beginning, really, there, there was nothing. And you kind of have to trust the entrepreneur and, and the vision that they, at some point will, able, will be able to, to make it um, work. I mean, it's, it's an absurd idea. You probably won't invest. But you do look at that. And um, Again, I, I, I worked at Google before Foursquare, and I think it's the same in Foursquare. We always look at the user experience, and we try to make sure that that's not impacted by the monetization. If it, if it does, then you probably should err on the, err on the side of caution and, and put that on to the side, that idea. Thank you. There was, uh, yes, the guy behind the, all the equipment, which means it's going to be a nightmare trying to get to you. <laughs> <laughs> if you could let the Mike's coming. chat go in there, we go. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, question for Ahmed, and actually more generally. So you guys, you said you were the first people to really bring this concept of a check-in to, to kind of people to be used to it. So if you're the first person in an innovative space, how do you get consumers to actually, you know, it's a new concept. How do you get them to, to start using it and to start liking it on a scale? Very good question. Um, I have a prepared answer for that <laughs> because I usually <laughs> often use it. Uh, so. For better or for worse, we're really known to uh, have innovated in terms of game mechanics. Uh, for the people who have not used the application before, what we did was we really um, incentivized people by giving them points for checking in, uh, by giving them badges, little virtual items um, for, for the check-ins. For instance, if you check into the gym 10 times in a 30-day period, you get the gym rat badge. And it was a small virtual item that people loved, uh, and it was a serendipitous discovery of something uh, funny and interesting. And I think that really got people, um, I would call it the, the gateway drug, really addicted to using the application in the beginning and understanding what's going on. It's a great onboarding tool, and I don't think gamification, by the way, is something that sustainably keeps users on the platform. You have to deliver some value at some point. But you have to think about the equivalent of gamification or onboarding mechanism that you really want to um, bake into the application from the get-go that gets people excited and introduces this new notion that you try to, um, that you try to uh, in, in bring into the market, right? Uh, I think a lot of what we're doing right now when we're bringing new uh, features into the app is thinking about the onboarding. Where should we put the buttons? What should we write to explain the feature to people? And you know, there needs to be a lot of A-B testing to figure out who reacts how to what. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say think about that thing that really engages and incentivizes people to keep on it. Uh, gamification is a great tool. Um, we use that, uh, but there's certainly other measures too. I think just to add upon that, um, it's the, the, the outset, like how you approach it. Like I think in this day and age, you can't force consumers to do anything. Um, and so with our business, a lot of the growth comes from referral, um, people talking about it, word of mouth, spreading it through other friends. So I think that in, in the mobile space, um, uh, at least I think it's e-commerce as well, but it's particularly true in mobile, um, you have to build a great app. Like if you don't have a great app, if you don't have a great product, throw everything out the window because customers are going to tell you exactly how they feel hmm. about your app. Either they're going to download it or they're not. Either they're going to come to it or they're not. Um, if they like it, it's a very social network. So they will tell their friends. Like word of mouth on mobile apps is much 
it's much stickier. Um, you get a much better sort of um, uh, rate of return or sort of referral rate than you do with websites. So the good news is if you build a great product and if you sort of stand by it, um, you, you will see better return than a, than a great website. Um, but you have to be diligent about that. And, and you can't, there's no cutting corners. Like you can't just go out and buy a bunch of keywords and drive people to your app. If they don't like it, they're just going to like um, uninstall it and never come back. Gentlemen at the back, you're all standing right behind the cameras. Is this like a <laughs> ploy? Hi, you're all very young companies, and I get the impression you have a very different culture, but I'd be really interested to, to hear more about your business culture. Um, and do you feel part of a new generation of um, entrepreneurs and, and, and enterprise? Um, I think... Uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a bit of a spoiled brat. I, I started working for, for Google for seven years, and I ended up in Fortress. I don't know how it is to work in Sony. Um, but I feel that the, co the companies that we work for are certainly very different in their approach to business because essentially a lot of the tools that we're using and a lot of the ways that we're trying to come up with the future requires you to be very different than the incumbents, right? So I think, um, for instance, uh, when we have a meeting... We, we sometimes have the rule where there's no way that anybody can say no, especially if it's a, brain a brainstorming meeting. There shouldn't be any negative feedback uh, because you want to just get all the ideas out and then you can, after the, uh, the meeting, start thinking about whether something was absolutely ridiculous. Um, that's one thing I would say. I think you're right that the cultures are generally young cultures. I don't think that's, that's necessarily a good thing. Uh, I think it's always good to have a very diverse workforce. Um, often uh, tech companies are also very male-dominated, which I don't uh, think is a good thing at all. You have to have diversity of thought. And it's usually only the problem that the people that are working in our industry have the skills, um, picked up the skills very recently, and people from the older generation, if I may call people like that, uh, haven't <laughs> had the exposure to this type of business. Uh, and these businesses are very new. But I think... You'll, you'll hopefully see me uh, as an old fart in a technology company at some point, and people won't think that uh, I don't have anything to, to um, contribute. Uh, I hope that kind of answered the question a little bit. I think having worked at big companies and then now, uh, and also some startups, I, you know, I think one of, one of the things that really strikes me is the um, uh, lack of fear of failure, um, where I think that in a lot of big companies, you know, you analyze and you sit in meetings and it's like so regimented, and there's this fear of being wrong that just doesn't exist in, in at least Hotel Tonight, where we actually celebrate when people screw up really big because it means they really got out there. I mean, they put themselves out there and they failed miserably. Um, and, and that's something that's very different. And also the idea that ideas come from everywhere. So it's not just this top down, you know, the CEO or the... Um, what do they call them? The hippos, the highest paid individuals come up with, I don't know what it, what it is. But anyway, um, you know, the best ideas don't come from the people that are in the highest positions or have been there the longest or what have you. You have to kind of, again, be open to ideas from everywhere. I think you just see, at least in, in our culture and a lot of the other startups, a lot more collaboration, you know, less formal meetings, more people just popping into desks and having casual ideas. Um, if you look at office spaces in a Old startup, open plan, yeah. lots of breakout areas, cool little lounges, places where people can game. You know, it's very different from, you know, the 
Amex's offices where you know, the highly paid people sit in corners and have no idea what their teams are doing. So I think it's just a op much more open idea flow um, and much more approachability. You know, like our, our CEO and, and, and co-founders, like they sit out with everyone, they know everybody's by first name. You know, it's just a, it's more family-like. Um, and is I think- Is that something to, sorry to interrupt you, but is yeah. there something to do with speed as well? Because big organizations, and having worked in a few, I can vouch for this, you come up with an idea, and then kind of four years later, someone says, that's a great <laughs> idea, let's do it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas There's I guess so you guys can just do it. You just well, don't have that process, I think, is a, is a part of it. Yeah. But I also think working for companies like we are doing, we are growing so fast, and people are involved from an early stage. They get very passionate, and by getting the freedom to do things, uh, they get really passionate about the project they're working on, and that, I think, is helping us getting the best out of our employees. Sure. I think it starts with the hiring, though. You know, they're passionate about it because they were passionate to begin with. And I think there's a inherent laziness that happens in big organizations. And um, today, and I would, I would assume it's probably a very similar hiring technique. It's not good enough that you can do the job. You have to be really passionate and have ideas and be really um, engaged with the the company itself and want to work here. Um, and fortunately, we can all be very picky, but I think you have to, it starts with having people that want to change, like, you know, they, they know they've drank the Kool-Aid, they know what you're doing is going to make a difference, and they're really behind it. Um, and, and, you know, that happens when it's young. It's harder as, if, as the company gets bigger, but hopefully we can all stay um, true to Nimble, that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about you, but I want to work for these guys now. <laughs> <laughs> um, gentleman there in the check shop. Oh, hi there. Um, basically, when it comes to disruptive innovation, what advice would you give to small startups which have the impending fear um, of the big players stealing their ideas when they launch and go into the marketplace? It's a good one. And, uh, yeah, I, I think <laughs> one of the things that you see, uh, if you look at the history of Foursquare, when we introduced the check-in, um, we knew that everybody else can easily imitate that, right? I mean, it's not, not, it's not the, the, the most uh, uh, sustained um, competitive advantage, sustainable competitive advantage. So you always have to think a couple of steps ahead, and you should not worry too much about what other people are doing. Because if we would be worrying about what other people are doing, then we probably wouldn't get any work done. Right, because um, you know the coffers of the Facebooks, the Googles, the uh, Microsofts of this world are endless compared to what we have from our venture capitalists. So, I'd say, think about what you're doing right now and think five steps ahead and try to really execute. It's I think 99% is execution, uh, and if you get the execution right, um, then you'd be surprised how you can outmaneuver bigger um, incumbents. Um, so, for instance, uh, to give you an example, we knew when we introduced the check-in that we wanted to make a personalized local search engine. And I don't think that anybody has really nailed that yet. And we have it in our application, and it's live and kicking, right? Uh, so if somebody is catching up with that, and that's going to be um, happening at some point, we're already working on the next thing. Well, you, don't have to, you can't sit idly and wait for the others to catch up, because they will. At Airbnb, we have a very strong focus on design. Two or three founders are designers. And I think that good design is making people have a personal relationship to your brand, and that's hard to copy for others. Yeah. 
I think uh, with our business, it's something I live with every day. You know, booking.com could easily crush us if they wanted to. But at the same time, it's um, we're so much more nimble than they are. You know, we're so much like, we're so focused. And I think that having, you know, um, having that level of focus and dedication and the resources that we have, we are able to stay ahead of them. So I think when you're looking at those big companies, what we sort of, we viewed as um, sort of their Achilles heel was that we knew that they couldn't react that quickly or that they wouldn't dedicate the resources to it. Because you look at their business and they're a multi-billion dollar company. Why would they put all this energy and effort to one little tiny niche of the market? So we sort of just, we carved out this market and said, you know what, this is, it's a, you know, 70 to $80 billion market, just same day hotel bookings. It's big enough for us, but they're probably not going to pull off five designers and 30 engineers and 50 salespeople to come at us. Um, so I think that uh, the, other, the other key would be, you know, figure out where they're weak and how you can exploit that weakness, um, and hopefully they'll buy you someday. <laughs> Any behind here? You've been looking at the back of my head for quite a long time. Um, there's one in the suit, and we'll start with you. Hi. I guess the question I have is a follow-up from a previous question. In particular, you were referring to kind of the idea that the user experience goes front and center, and kind of the monetization of the product comes later. But in these kind of, you know, you'll, you'll have these breakout sessions, and you're talking about these ideas, and, and they're being thrown about the room. And in a perfect world, I'm sure great ideas may not make money. So I guess the question is, is there a trade-off between innovation and revenue? And at which point kind of, do, your, do your investors step in or, or does somebody step in and say, hold up here, we're not a charity. You know, this has to make money at some stage. I mean, where does that come into all of this? And I guess probably it makes more, this question is more relevant for a social network than, than I guess for, for the Airbnb. And the, yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> So uh, you meant that that question is directed at me. No, fair enough. No, totally get it. Uh, I guess I also uh, made the mistake of saying the uh, making the statement in the first place that you were talking about. Um, so I, I'd say, in many ways, I wouldn't necessarily say that innovation is counter to to, to revenue. Uh, I think there is a symbiosis between the two. I think you can be innovative and through innovation actually create new revenue streams. Right? Uh, something that is not possible with your application in the current state can, um, uh, and you introduce a new feature that can actually be monetized down the line. So my, while sometimes you'd see monetization counter to innovation with the current state of your application, the innovation in itself will hopefully get you to, to do new and interesting things down the line. So, and you're right, maybe to a certain extent that innovation uh, is counter to monetization if it um, does not, uh, if it does not support the user experience at itself, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, for instance, if you, uh, this is completely unrelated, but Google's self-driving cars, right? They're starting to innovate something which doesn't really make sense for Google at all. Uh, they're, they're just trying to push the boundary in, in some way. And they're thinking uh, down the line, we'll probably be able to monetize because people were sitting in their cars and they probably won't be doing anything because they don't need to drive, so they'll be surfing the web and we'll get more adverse revenue right down the line. So this is, I think, a great example of uh, innovation leading to downstream revenues that you might not see initially, right? And hopefully, uh, when you're focusing on building something, you'll have that in the back of your mind, but it should not be the dominating thought. You should rather think about, how can I push the boundaries? How can I make the user experience better? I hope that was a good answer. 
I think you still have to know that someday you're going to get there. And then it's just a matter of what's that timeline and agreeing on that with your investors and <laughs> making sure that you have enough money and the right investors, right? So if your investors are pushing you to monetize before, it really makes sense that it can destroy the business. Or if you don't have enough money at the outset, and so you're spending half your time running around trying to raise funds and nobody's watching the business and no one's driving the business, that's a fail as well. So I think it's... Uh, making sure that you know when and how roughly you're going to make money um, and making sure that your investors are bought into that schedule and they're not saying, oh, no, I know you said five years, but I think two, because um, that's a problem. But, but <laughs> if, I, if I may add, and I think this is a really important point, uh, this is the difference between great VCs and bad VCs, by the yeah, way. They absolutely. know at some point uh, that they need to push you, but they don't push you too early, right? Um, but one thing that I can, uh, I can suggest you to do if you're building a, an application or a platform is try things out earlier in terms of monetization with small experiments here and there. You don't have to roll everything out. And this is the, the comfort that we have with applications that uh, can uh, create A-B experiences for different people. You can actually test things out and see how are they perceived. You can learn from the, from the little sample data set of people that you have on the application and then take that knowledge and uh, um, uh, essentially uh, um, innovate on it. It's right, actually. I had mentioned this before, too, but there was a study that was done by Google recently about mobile um, advertising and mobile applications. And 67% um, of people said that they were fine with ads in mobile devices um, versus on websites. And as long as it was relevant, it was targeted, it wasn't obtrusive. So there, there, there's a lot more um, comfort or there's a little bit more willingness to have advertisements as long as they're very relevant, like as long as they're very targeted. And so, um, you know, unlike in the web world where people don't even see banner ads anymore, um, there's a little bit of a different environment happening on mobile. Great. Um, we've only got time for one more question, and I promised it to the gentleman over there. I apologize. Hi, no pressure. Make it a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're talking about um, disruptive innovation. Um, and at any point, anyone could be sat at home coming up with businesses that are going to compete with your own businesses. To what extent is exclusive relationships with partners or marketing important to your business and how much sort of do you put onto that relationship and do you try and hold on to them? So for example, if someone had a relationship with the Intercontinental Hotel Group, that could be a problem for you in certain markets. Yeah. How important do you find personal one-to-one -one relationships are important? Um, I can start, and that is, I think personal relationships, especially on the supplier side, are really important, but not, uh, they're not precious, right? So when we came over again, a lot of our competitors and copycats were working with partners, it really comes down to, are you able to deliver? You know, so um, we're very fortunate in that hotel suppliers are very open-minded, and they'll try new things, and they'll, you know, see if they work, but if you can't deliver, then they're not going to just stick around for the sake of, you know, I liked, I liked Heather, and so I'm going to keep, keep our contract open. Um, we've never pushed for ex exclusivity with any of our hotel partners. And one of the things that, 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 you know, the biggest pressure I think we get from the big guys is they try to strong arm um, our hotel partners into not working with us or not giving us stronger deals because, um, you know, they're, they're the booking.com business, not that they do this or I'm implying that, but if they were, using them as an example, you know, the business they're giving to that hotel is far greater than what we would do. Um, and I think that, you know, when you get into that sort of situation, you're telling the supplier how to run their business, right? Which isn't a healthy um, and, uh, 
um, partnership. It's, it's not really a partnership at all. So I think we've been very cautious and very careful rather than going in and saying, you know, we're the biggest in the space and we're the leader and we're going to drive the most customers and you need to sign exclusivity. We prove it every day by bringing them great customers and, and really kind of focusing on what their needs are and innovating not just on the app side for the, the customers but also on the suppliers, like making it much easier for them to work with us and much more cost effective. So to me, that's how you create loyalty with your partners is by being a partner, <laughs> not by saying there's a line in the contract that says you can't work with anyone else. Um, it's particularly hard, I think, with the hotels today. They've lost so much control over how they, you know, how they do business. So um, it's, it's, it's really important to us. Yeah, I think it's a simple cost-benefit analysis. Maybe not simple, but it's a cost-benefit analysis, right? Let's presume you have a sexy brand. You want to break into an unknown market. You have a big partner who can support you with a launch. Um, and you commit only to that partner. Obviously, that partner will be more committed to you, will throw in a lot of marketing budget to push your brand and their brand, uh, and they might have relationships that will uh, benefit you. But down the line, when you have a grip on the market and you've extended your, your, your reach, I think you'd do yourself a disservice if you would only stick with that one partner and you probably want to open it up to, to more relationships, right? But it's again, it's a cost-benefit analysis that you have to make. If you're working with one really big incumbent and they own 90% of the market and whatever it is that you want to capture, then it's probably good to keep an exclusive relationship with that. Uh, but it's, there are so many factors that play into it to give you a proper answer to what would be right or wrong. But uh, it's, uh, you have to, I think, assess it um, and take everything into account. Yeah. Anything to add? Well, it's a bit different for us. We mostly have private people renting out their own space. Uh, but people are free to be on other sites to sell if they want that. So I think it's ab about not only driving the demand, but also what type of demand they're getting from our site. So uh, we, you know, educate our community to communicate as much as possible before the booking is made to make sure that the experience that will be both from the guests and the host are truly unique. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, the podcast will be on the site in the next couple of days, so you can go back and gain all the information again. Um, but please give a round of applause to our, our panel, and thank you very much for being here.